I completely or, agree. If the history given is really good, the neurologist tell the diagnosis and they'll be like wowed by the neurologist. But actually, it's the person who took the history that did all the work. <laughs> that is very cunning. I will I shall write that down. That was Sui Wong, neuro-ophthalmology specialist and neurology consultant at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, as well as giving all kinds of excellent advice and priceless pearls on eye movement and visual loss. She's also full of great wisdom on the soft skills that make a good doctor, no matter what your specialty or subspecialty. This is Tease Neuro. I'm Lou Wiblin, consultant at Middlesbrough James Cook Hospital. And thank you for joining us with my interview with Dr. Sui Wong on the fundamentals of neuro-ophthalmology. Dr. Wong is trained in neurology and neuro-ophthalmology and practices in Moorfields in London, as well as King's and Tommy's. Uh, she's an authority on IIH and myasthenia gravis and she's also an accomplished yogi or practitioner of advanced movement. It's nice to meet you Dr. Wong. Oh, thank you so much Dr. Weblin. It's actually guys in St. Thomas's. Ah, Thomas's. London Hospital. So I've, I've worked in them all and been shouted at in all of them. Oh, thank you. So Sorry about that. Privileged to be here. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Very grateful. So uh, we asked quite a lot of our trainees, we asked on Twitter, we asked for emails about what sort of things they would like to ask you today. And I'm really glad you've agreed to join us for four and a half hours to answer all the questions that we've been asked. So, uh, <laughs> but we've, I've had to whittle them down a little bit and I've gone mainly for questions that have been repeated over and over again. Um, so I thought we would start with some of the fundamental questions and a lot of the questions are real fundamentals, which I think is quite exciting. Um, and one of our IFY ones uh, contacted through Twitter and said that <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't know anything about neuro-ophthalmology. And the most important thing for her was to be able to take a good neuro-ophthalmology history to be able to use the correct language to describe it and be able to relay to an expert over the telephone what was going on. So do you think you'd be able to help her with that? Yes, sure, of course. And I would say doing really good neuro-ophthalmology is like doing really good neurology and in fact doing really good medicine. It starts with uh, paying attention to history and asking questions and listening very carefully. So in terms of your uh, question about the describing of the neuroophthalmic side, I suppose um, perhaps the one that does worry many most is about actually how they describe eye movements rather than just saying complex ophthalmoplegia. Perhaps we can be a bit more uh, descriptive about it. So Don't take complex ophthalmoplegia away from me. <laughs> <laughs> it can be very useful. <laughs> So um, in answer to your uh, uh, team's question, um, you know, so I would say kind of after taking a systematic history in terms of the examination, for example, with eye movements, it starts first with observing. Uh, well, like as you do in your eye movement work, so just observe. So I would say specifically for the eye movements, observe the face, observe the symmetry of the face, observe the positioning of the eyes, you know, whether one is just with whether one is appearing to be higher or lower, turning in or turning out. And um, they, I, you know, a term that's often used is terms like um, esophoria, exophoria, esotropia, exotropia. 
And um, I understand there was this question um, about, you know, what do these things mean? So I would say, uh, so first, as you observe the person, observe whether the eyes are turned in, turned out. And if it's turned in, it's easel, esotropia. Uh, turned out, exotropia. And uh, the tropia is when there's a visible misalignment. And phoria is really about a tendency. So you actually have to cover the eyes uh, one after another, sequential cover test to bring it out. So it starts with this looking at the face, doing a cover test straight ahead, and then start doing eye movements. I would say do it uh, and think about it in two ways. One is with both eyes moving together, binocular examination, uh, or, or uh, also you call the versions. And then oftentimes it's then helpful to move on with doing it monocularly, covering one eye and observing the movements of the eye. So for example, um, with the both eye movements, we talk about three types of movement, uh, pursuit, saccades and convergence. And pursuit, we all know where we have the target in front of us and slowly moving uh, in the positions of, uh, for example, the H position, uh, classically examined, or in other, other positions like the X uh, movement. But the key thing is about um, being far enough, having the target far enough from the patient, about one meter away rather than being very close. Uh, having a large enough target, especially if there is any uh, deficits, uh, you know, the, if the person has blurred vision, for example. So observe it and moving the speed of the target slow enough so that it's actually pursued rather than being too fast where the, the, where the patient actually has to kind of like catch up by using a, a different system of saccade of jumping ahead to follow. So after doing the pursuit, then doing the saccades, looking for the speed of left, right, left, right, uh, for example, or up and down, and then followed by convergence. Um, the reason for splitting it in this, this way is it kind of helps to clarify the deficits. So for example, if we are starting off with double vision, uh, starting off with examination with both eyes open, the versions of movement, um, it starts off, I, I would say start off as you're examining the, the patient, kind of just documenting, do they have double vision? And a classic way to uh, do that would be documenting it in the so-called nine positions of the gaze. Um, and that will help to, to, to kind of uh, figure out what exactly is wrong. Um, so nine positions of gaze would be straight ahead, looking left, looking right, looking up, looking down. And then the other four would be top and up right, top and up left, bottom and down right, bottom and down left. And um, as you're examining, trying to figure out which muscle is actually affected. Um, so, for example, if following a moving to the right, if the patient is saying that they have double vision, then it's likely to have some misalignment either with the left eye, so moving to the patient's right, either the patient has a left eye AB adduction deficit, like the medial rectus muscle, or uh, a B duction deficit, like the lateral rectus, for example. <laughs> Got to get my words. So, um, and you know, just figure that. So, it could be a covering of the test, and then keeping one eye covered as you then explore it a bit further. So, that would be the key, the, the one thing to say. So, examining with both eyes open, 
if there is double vision, trying to figure out which eye is it that is limited and then which muscle is it, is it that's limited. So you, if we go up, go to our textbooks or if you just search on the internet, it's really uh, straightforward where you see the maximum vectors of action of the six muscles of each eye of the superior rectus inferior oblique lateral rectus, medial rectus, superior oblique, inferior oblique, um, and kind of trying to figure out. Um, so I would say trying to um, hone in on that is helpful because rather than just saying, oh, right, it's a um, fourth nerve or third nerve or sixth nerve, um, try calling it a nerve is not necessarily the most helpful to begin with because the first thing you want to do is document the deficit so that we can then think about it. Um, and then there are other ways, there are other things that we then do. So for example, um, the, the convergence after that, after we've done the uh, pursuit and then getting the patient to follow in an interesting target, uh, test the convergence system. And that can be helpful. For example, uh, in neurology, we uh, sometimes think, oh, does this patient have an INO? Or does, does the patient have a medial rectus uh, uh, adduction uh, limitation? then it's a case of if you use a convergence in AINO, for example, you have the limitations of the adduction, but when you converge in, the medial rectus is pulling it in because it uses a different system. So what we call a convergence dissociation. That sort of example. So I can carry on a little bit there, but that's a kind of a useful start to begin with. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. Um, when other problems are described so one thing you said was double vision or diplopia um i think when we get when we get a consult for double vision um i think folks on the other side of the phone really struggle to describe what they mean by double vision and we have the sort of monocular binocular and folk always say uh uh and you can hear the panic and you're trying not to be <laughs> you're trying to be sort of kind and help through um when you get referrals, particularly from folks who aren't specialists, obviously at Moorfields, it's a very specialist centre. But when you get sort of an unselected take and you get civilians like us referring to you, what do you think is described quite poorly and what sort of simple tips for key presentations do you think would be really helpful for um, mere, mere non-ophthalmology mortals? So diplopia is one that I think we get quite a lot. Yes, yes. And actually, it's, it's true. It is hard, even for the specialists, quite frankly. So, you know, we're all in this learning journey here. And uh, it's all, you know, for, for example, if I have a telephone call, of course, a lot of it is in history. But if somebody were to describe the examination, it's really helpful and also helpful in the documentation of the notes. For example, if you go to the right eye, okay, you can say, uh, you know, you can draw the star in the notes as I talked about the maximum vectors of action. So you're thinking it's the, the medial rectus is affected, um, superior rectus is affected, inferior oblique, and then you kind of put it together going, okay, it looks like it's a, it's all muscle supplied by the third nerve or, oh, it could be a superior oblique muscle supplied by the fourth nerve. Or you go, oh, uh, you know, and various other patterns could suggest it's something else like a structural I uh, think um, like a specific muscle that's affected could be thyroid eye disease or the muscle myositis of specific muscle. So, and that also helps to tie in, in um, as we like in neurology, it's uh, when we examine, we try to localize. Of course, it mm. starts from history, but examination helps to localize. And that is why, you know, just describing it as, okay, the eye is straight, uh, looks, uh, you know, turns out 
exo, uh, you know, whether it's the eye, you can see uh, the eye turns out or exotropic eye, uh, you know, and on examination, there is limitation of right eye, a deduction, you know, adduction and elevation in the distribution of the whatever muscle, if you wish, or just describe the deficit in terms of the adduction or elevation and such things. I think that is helpful. And beyond the eye movements, mm. being able to sort of describe what the eye looks like or what the eye can't do, I think folk really struggle with that. So ptosis is one thing or skew deviation, that sort of thing. And I think when, when folks know how to use these terms and often no one ever describes them, it was never described to me in medical school, really. It's just so helpful. And then suddenly everybody's switched on to what's going on. Are there mm. a, a handful of key words that are helpful for trainees to know about, particularly ones starting off? So ptosis being one example. Can you think of any others that are, oh, good, are good armories? Oh, I see. Um, so if somebody kind of describes... Um, so I would say just be systematic with the neurological examination. It's essentially the cranial nerve examinations. So if somebody has got ptosis, uh, you know, you have to do all the cranial nerve related to that, uh, you know, in terms of is it a, is it a third nerve thing, is it et cetera, um, you know, trying to describe it in that way. Certainly, for example, if somebody presents with ptosis, then you're, you have to wonder, is it actually ptosis of the eye that is affected or is it, retraction of the lids for the other eye that's not affected for example just being aware of that if somebody's saying ptosis then it's a quick question you know it comes with is you know what's the history how does it come on and then with that then you'll be more specific for example if somebody says to me all right um, um uh, somebody who presents with intermittent uh, double vision and uh, examination they have the ptosis then my one of the things i'll be thinking of is have we checked for fatigability? Have we checked whether to, uh, ptosis could be provoked or diplopia could be provoked? Is there any weakness of the opicularis oculi, etc.? That kind of goes a little bit further down in terms of depending, guided by the history. Um, so, or if somebody says, um, uh, um, you know, uh, there is uh, some uh, injury and then presented with ptosis. And I'm thinking, what kind of injury? Is it a Horner syndrome, for example? What does the pupil look like? Then I'll be asking more specific questions like, is there a difference in the pupil sizes? What we call anisocoria, which pupil is smaller, which pupil is larger? Does it, uh, is there any difference in the light or dark, for example, of the, how it is brought out in the dark uh, for Horner syndrome? Or if somebody, kind of, something else, like, you know, it, it presents with, oh, this person has uh, um, episodes of double vision and and there's a bit of ptosis in the left eye and then actually the pupil's larger, then of course, then my question is, oh, is it like a third nerve problem? Then I'll be actually wanting details. So I would say if one takes the very systematic approach of a good history, uh, as we talked about, and the examination is just very systematic. So you're very thorough with your cranial nerves, document everything. And then as you're examining the cranial nerves, um, some of it, some of the extra tests would be certainly guided further. So I always, um, from a neuroophthalmic point of view, there's always the test of the vision. Uh, with, uh, there's color, there is visual field testing by the bedside, um, there's pupil reaction, so the cranial nerve number two, kind of going from forward, going back, you know, all this stuff that uh, kind of comes from good neurology. Um, and then looking at optic disc, then looking at eye movement, three, four, six, 
what, the five, seven, et cetera, et cetera, all the cranial nerves, and it all kind of ties in together. And if, if the history suggests it's something else, that brainstem effect affecting the eye movements or extrapyramidal symptoms, then all the relevant aspects for those conditions will have to be part of the presentation from the junior to the senior. Mm. So, yeah, I am... Um, I. <laughs> I am very guilty of, of being on the other side of the phone and when they say, oh, yeah, so there's a drooping eyelid, I'm like, uh-huh. And, and, and the pupils, uh, the pupils are, it's one pupil big. It's one pupil big. I'm slightly guilty of that, sort of never, never miss a third nerve palsy. Um, but it, it, I think it's really helpful for, for folks to be able to describe the sort of the urgent presentation of, a, of an abnormal eye um, and sort of staying with urgent presentations involving neuroophthalmology Again and again, I got so many tweets saying, oh, how do we approach visual loss? If somebody comes into the MAU, somebody comes into A&E and they've gone blind, I find that terrifying. How mm. do I deal with that? How do I approach it? Mm. So do you think you might be able to sort of take us step by step about how you would approach and, and manage acute visual loss and yes. we can sort of break it down? So when you say acute visual loss, do you mean monocular or I mean, uh, binocular, monocular or... So let's start with monocular. All right, okay. <laughs> because it's really like a whole textbook of neuroophthalmology on okay, visual loss. <laughs> and these, these are great questions. And I think um, like what you're doing with the T's neuro is brilliant, you know, just education and just so that we, we kind of understand a bit more with the approach. So with monocular visual loss, again, sorry, I keep mentioning my history because it's so important, you know. And as you know, if somebody calls you and they tell you a really good history, you can tell what the diagnosis is, you know, if it's done really well. I, I, think, I think they assume the neurologist is just an examination machine, but actually that's not a huge part of it. It's not, it's not the, the full part of it, but yeah. If the history given is really good, the neurologist tell the diagnosis and they'll be like wowed by the neurologist. But actually, it's the person who took the history that did all the work. <laughs> that is very cunning. I will I shall write that down. So, for example, if somebody presents with acute visual loss in one eye, um, the key thing firstly, actually, the re that's a good question, is it monocular or binocular? Because oftentimes, if somebody had a transient episode, of visual disturbance, they may say, oh yes, doctor, I had this problem where I lost vision in my right eye. And when you probe the history further, they never did a cover test. So you can't tell whether it was the right eye or the right side of their visual field. Um, and sometimes you can get clues about that. So for example, if somebody is doing something and then they suddenly can't function, it's probably binocular because mm. one eye can compensate for the other quite well. So, and then, off, uh, so that, that's one. So, the, if it was truly monocular, then it comes with the, you know, how, how quickly did it come on? Did it come on with pain or not? And it, there, are some, there are some things that helps guide it a bit. So, for example, uh, we, we think of just bang, sudden onset. Oftentimes, we think of, of it as a vascular onset. But being aware that sometimes, because we use both eyes, uh, the patient may have lost vision in one eye for some time, and then, you know, dust entered the other eye, they rubbed their eye, and then they go, ooh, sudden onset. So They've just become aware of, of exactly, the subacute, like, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like a pseudo-sudden onset is, is quite, common in, uh, uh, quite common in my area. And um, so that's one, how quickly it came on, whether it came on with pain or not, and um, guided by 
elsewhere with examination. The thing with monocular visual loss is there are lots of reasons for monocular neuro-ophthalmology, but actually there are lots of ophthalmological cause of acute visual loss um, monocularly, so it's kind of taking into account. So just assume that the ophthalmologist has referred this to you, the neurologist, to say, if there's, I can't find anything wrong uh, in the eye when I examine it. So then you start thinking, okay, or uh, is it something else like an optic nerve problem because that's what we think of with this monocular um, and uh, trying to uh, find examination uh, findings that would support a question of is this an optic neuropathy or is it something else so for example we talked about the vision uh, color uh, vision oftentimes it can be helpful uh, you know with drop of color vision uh, compared to say acuity not too bad but vision color dropped quite a lot in the affected eye it makes you start to think about uh, optic neuropathy as a potential um, uh, differential there is not the only thing. So then you look at pupil reactions. Is there a relative apparent pupillary defect? You do your visual field. Uh, is there any change in the visual field? Look into the eye. Is there any disc swelling, for example? So, <clears throat> so let's say acute visual loss. Somebody who comes with, um, you know, they woke up and they can't see the bottom half of their vision. And when you look into the eye, there is some swelling in the eye. And then you do, so the visual field would be, you do the visual field altitudinal, you know, half of the field. And kind of differentials that come with that, you think, all right, a vascular cause, so non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, or if it's an older patient, an arteritic form of ischemic optic neuropathy, for example. So then, of course, then, uh, and then, um, or, or another example, say a painful eye, and um, you have pain, vision is a bit blurred, color vision is really bad, really, really pronounced RA, relative afferent pupillary defect, uh, swollen disc, or sometimes not swollen, you think, all right, okay, this is an optic neuropathy, likely optic neuritis from the, 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 the tempo of it. It may or may not come with pain depending on how close it is to the, the eyeball itself or how much further back to the brain, for example, or, or other things. Like um, perhaps there could be a, a closing in of the optic nerve uh, or at the peripheral visual field and a swollen disc. So you think of it like a perineuritis. Um, or a central scotoma, for example, would make you think, all right, is it like a toxic nutritional or is it like a labor type of optic neuropathy, you know, and, um, and so and so forth. Um, I think it's quite interesting how patients describe, particularly optic neuritis, I think it's really interesting how patients describe it. There are certain things I was listening out for, like, um, oh, it, it's very dirty looking out of this eye, mm. or it looks like I'm looking through my grandma's neck curtains. That's a very northern one that I've heard quite a lot. Mm. Um, and the sort of the description of the retrobulbar optic neuritis, the, yes. the ophthalmologist sees nothing and neither does the patient. I quite yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think that also highlights the value of actually the skills of the uh, bedside examination. Because you could, you could uh, kind of make a good, uh, you can get the differential diagnosis really well based on the history and the examination. So, like, you know, the, the visual field deficits uh, with everything else kind of is able to help you hone a little bit in on the differential diagnosis, for example. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit there about swollen discs and inflamed mm -hmm. discs. 
and that's that's a grand grand favorite isn't it really you know how could you could, could you tell me whether or not this is papilledema or papillitis and you sort of sink into your chair a little bit and go um well how how would you how would you how did you feel that one and how would you feel it now so um Papilledema, strictly speaking, um, I would say I use it, uh, I define it as this swelling due to waist intracranial pressure, um, very quite specifically, rather than just this swelling. Um, and papillitis, you know, you could use that term for inflammatory cause of this swelling or, you know, a very anterior sort of, as in the optic neuritis that just really close uh, at the optic nerve head, for example. I don't tend to use the word papillitis so much because I don't think it really adds a lot more. But I tend to describe it as all right, optic disc swelling due to, for example, you know, inflammation or something yeah. else, or because it could be uh, disc swelling due to. I this I described about non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, um, and there are other reasons for this swelling. Uh, or actually, it's not a swelling; it's a pseudo papilledema, like the disc looks elevated or pushed forward. It may be that the patient has dystrusen, optic dystrusen, or the shape of their nerve, it's very crowded, you know, it could be a small and crowded disc. Or sometimes if somebody's very, very myopic or very, very short-sighted, you know, the nasal part of the disc could be just a bit blurred. That's just the configuration of a myopic optic disc, for example. So the question of papilledema versus papillitis a lot of it I will get from the history already. <laughs> and also when I examine the optic disc, sometimes I get clues to it. Sometimes I get clues to it. Um, and it's hard to describe in, a, in this interview how to get clues when it's quite a visual thing <laughs> in terms of example. Um, but, you know, the history would probably tell you if somebody does have symptoms of raising intracranial pressure. Uh, having said that, there are uh, a fair number of people uh, with uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension who maybe have just had it picked up because of routine optician check, for example. Um, so that comes with um, other things. So, uh, so sometimes history helps, sometimes not. Um, examination really helps. So just as how you already said, you know, the patient can't see and uh, you can't see anything wrong. I think, did I misquote you? Something like that. I paraphrased it. <laughs> but um, so classically, you would say that in papilledema, unless it's really, really very severe, oftentimes you see, a, you see the swelling, but the acuity is good. You know, color vision is good. Um, when you do the visual field, okay, perhaps the blind spot is enlarged, perhaps a bit of nasal uh, restriction, but it's generally pretty good. Um, otherwise, compared to, say, optic neuritis, when they may have their color vision very badly affected. Sometimes the acuity is also really very badly affected depending on the cause of the, the optic neuritis. And, um, you know, the visual field, you know, it's certainly something else. If, if there was something like, you know, quite a central scotoma or just generally much more severely affected, uh, then I would be thinking of something else, inflammatory, uh, for example, would be up there as a differential diagnosis. And does, does symmetry or asymmetry lead you a lot? Because I used to talk about that quite a lot in Grand Round. So I say, well, papilledema, you'd expect, even if it's asymmetric, you'd expect it to be bilateral, whereas optic neuritis is more likely to be unilateral, but it can be bilateral. I remember, I remember saying that. Is, does that guide you much? Is that a rule of thumb that you use with the, the knowledge that there are exceptions? 
Um, I think that's a nice rule of thumb. I've seen a lot of exceptions, but maybe it's because of my specialty. Mm. I, I mean, I, I run a very big service for this swelling, papilledema, IIH. So I see all sorts of presentations. I've seen enough of unilateral or asymmetric. And also I see a lot of optic neuritis of sometimes the rarer sorts that could be bilateral. That um, It's not at the top of my mind, but I think hearing you say it, I think that is a fair, fair, fair uh, thing to conclude. Oh yes, and of course, if it's asymmetric, the pupil response will be very helpful. Mm. There is an RAPD, then yeah, it has to be something more than a papilledema, unless the papilledema is so asymmetric that it's caused atrophy already. And that's when you think, okay, maybe a, uh, some other tumor, you know, that's causing that, that maybe a compression effect and something else. So, yeah. Well, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. And, and you have a massive service for IH, don't you? So you must see the, the full gamut. And I, I know you've talked really enthusiastically about how to manage these patients well. Um, yes. And I guess particularly for registrars, and I've just stopped being one, IIH is pretty much the neuro-ophthalmology bread and butter. Mm. Just, you've probably got so much to, to say just about this thing alone, but do you have like any pithy little uh, helping tips for how to manage these patients better than we do? Mm. You know, beyond, you know, the, acetazolamide yes. and topiramate and it you need to lose weight what yes. what else do you think can be helpful yeah well firstly before we talk about the weight thing and all that the key thing is actually to hone in on the what are the uh, uh the causes of it oftentimes it's weight and oftentimes that's the only thing but it's i've seen it enough of the other contributing causes like very it's like severe anemia or severe sleep apnea it's bad enough and it's uh, reversible enough uh, and sometimes it can cause uh, visual loss so quickly that is definitely everybody should have all that screened for. And of course, the, the thing where you kind of take a thorough history uh, and you know look up for all the contributing things like medications or supplements or, or other causes uh, that could be uh, causing raising draconic pressure. So assuming all that's clear and assuming that the only thing is the weight um, and of course, as you have just uh, hinted about topiramate, meaning headache is a big issue about that. Um, I, you know, it's a tricky one because bear in mind, uh, these ladies, oftentimes 95, 98% of them are women, uh, overweight, uh, and um, they wouldn't feel so good already yeah. about, about their weight. And um, how the diagnosis is conveyed could be very triggering. It could be so triggering that it, they either engage with the service or they just, you know, or they get into sick role, etc. So I would say just, just having that awareness, that kindness, and just that sensitivity about explaining that. I often apologize, I often apologize when I say it's to do with weight. I'm so sorry, I have to say that, etc. And oftentimes the patient will respond with saying, no, it's okay, I need to know, etc. And the way that way of them knowing that it's not a judgment is quite important i think so that's the, the that that starts with you know the start of the rapport and, and then just sensitively explaining about weight loss i find it could be taken in a few ways some has a history of really trying to lose weight and then they just 
may potentially feel quite disheartened. They go, oh yeah, yet another condition. Um, and what can they do about it? They've tried everything. So as part of that conversation of breaking the news, when I say it was with a weight, I kind of pause a bit and ask them what they think. And I pause a bit, ask them what has happened in the past. And that gives me an idea a little bit of what is the approach for them to support them. Um, and the in some, it may be that because of perhaps oftentimes I see sadly is to do with uh, poorer social classes where they don't have the education about nutrition or they don't have the, uh, you know, um, junk food is cheaper uh, than, you know, uh, fresh food oftentimes. We've heard, we've heard about the urban jungles where you can't find like fresh vegetables and such yeah, things. Yeah, food deserts. I imagine in East London, it's very similar to Middlesbrough and Teesside. You see a very similar mix of, mix of um, yeah. deprivation. Yes, yes, yes. So some, so so it's. I think some. It's partly education, if that's what needed. Uh, it's empowering them, and I always end with saying that you know I'm here to support their journey. So I'm not there to fix it for them. I'm here to support their journey, and um, I try to pull in other people. So I could send them to a dietitian, and that also depends on the dietitian's skill. Sometimes they get on with it, sometimes they don't. But they know it's part of a bigger team to help support on their journey. And I actually now. Um, say that the goal of this is to get you so I oftentimes say that oh the weight you carry is too much for you too much for your body it's almost like your body's rejecting it and it's causing this high pressure and I say oh you know clearly when you look around you there are friends and family who's much who are much heavier but they don't have this problem but for you for some reason this weight that you gain is just too much for your body so I just talked about how much aiming for 10 to 10 to 15 percent of weight loss and I say never gonna diet you go on a diet, you come off a diet. So I then have the opportunity to talk about healthy eating. Um, and I then have the opportunity. It, it all doesn't go in one uh, conversation, by the way. It gets a bit overwhelming. It kind of gets split up. Then I can talk about lifestyle uh, aspects. Um, I've got, um, you know, things like that. Um, that's, I think that's, that's really that. lovely. I think that's really lovely because you're blaming this person's individual biology, which can't be changed. But they as a person, their, their choices, their behaviours can influence how you know their biology and, and reduce their risk. I think that's a really nice way of, of going about it. I, I always make the IIH a male phenomenon. Yeah. I always say, you know, well, nature, mother nature is not a feminist and it's really unfair that this has happened to you. And I feel really sorry that it's happened to you. And they almost always then describe their IIH as male. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. And, wow, wow. And, they, and they kind of resent it and get annoyed by it, but they don't feel that the IIH is then, then them. Yes. It yes. doesn't always help with weight loss, but I've found that that kind of takes away the, the, the judgment so much. Uh, so that I've, that's worked quite well for me. But triggering, you're quite right. I've had quite a lot of people who um, have found the diagnosis quite triggering. Yes, uh, that's yes, a good yes. word. And I think if you go about it the wrong way, you will, you'll alienate people. And exactly, exactly. I try to empower them and I always kind of try to say that this is an opportunity for them to, uh, you know, in 12 to 18 months, this whole thing will go away because they have adopted all the lifestyle, you know, they have kind of, they have a sustainable way of healthy weights and uh, they come out on the other side feeling more uh, better in themselves, healthier, and also influence, oftentimes their children. So I talk about how their habits just kind of show uh, by example to their children and kind of giving them a better chance for healthier uh, lives. And also I've seen enough of influence spreading out from families to friends to 
to feel very passionate that this is an opportunity for empowering them. You do think that if we had the funding and the resources, it would be family counselling and family cookery lessons. That would be the ideal, wouldn't it? Really? Mm. I mean, you'd be surprised, you know, look into all the... Um, what do you call social prescription stuff? Um, certainly up in the Northeast, I think you guys have a big drive from some of the GPs. Um, I'm part of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. There's a diploma for it. Um, and it's great. There is this network of people who are like, oh, we want lifestyle measures. We want to empower people. It's a, it's a really nice tribe. Yeah, oh, I will look into that. Thank you. So I think that that's really, uh, that's really useful stuff really lots of meat on the bones for our more junior trainees um and i think the, the registrars the, the tone sort of changed away from description papilledema versus optic neuritis to so it's not iih and it's it's not straightforward optic neuritis what do i do now and i i, I think the first one and the most frequent one was with well on the one hand i had a lot of bilateral optic neuritis what do I do and also you know I tend to just send aquaporin 4 and mog for everybody who comes to me with a, a severe optic neuritis but I'm not really sure that's the best thing does it have to be bilateral or when would you suspect NMO uh, spectrum disorder or, or, or mog mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question because it really comes to uh, the question of um, is this optic neuritis the demyelinating sort related to MS or is it related to something else like MOG, NMO, sarcoid? There are lots of other uh, non-demyelinating optic neuritis. So just if we go back to the first principles of, um, you know, just generally speaking, when somebody has an optic neuritis. Okay, we've done all the bits that we already talked about and we think, okay, this is optic neuritis. And then I would say the way to think about optic neuritis is trying to figure out, is it the MS type? Or sometimes you read in the literature as so-called typical optic neuritis, but I would use the, I would prefer the term demyelinating optic neuritis or MS type or MS associated optic neuritis because a typical optic neuritis is different in this country compared to uh, India, compared to China, etc. So I would just call it an MS type or a demyelinating type versus a, a, a non-MS type. So um, we can retrospect, you know, when we look at uh, demographics, usually the MS type uh, would be people who have been, uh, you know, usually the MS characteristics, as you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, usually white uh, ethnic heritage, etc. usually not so severe. We think usually the vision uh, uh, oftentimes start with some discomfort on eye movement um, and then followed by pain and then it reaches its worst uh, at about two week time point and then it stabilizes and it starts to spontaneously improve. And usually the, the worst level of vision is not that bad. Um, it, you know, it's a few lines from the bottom of the chart, but certainly not so bad uh, in comparison to the non-MS type or the, or the so-called atypical optic neuritis, uh, which that includes MOG or uh, NMO or sarcoid, and other sort of inflammatory optic neuritis, which it can be very severe. Um, you know, the, the, the level of visual loss could be very severe, you know, um, 660, top 
letter on the chart or counting fingers, hand movements. So if the level of vision is really bad, I worry that it's not MS type of optineuritis. Um, usually we say, okay, it's um, non-white ethnic heritage. Uh, that's usually the, the comment about it. Um, and um, I would say though, because there is so much migration around, sometimes it's really hard to differentiate. So if I had the option of an MRI scan, I would get it ASAP. Because if there were demyelinating lesions, then you know, all right, this is a demyelinating form of uh, optic neuritis. It should get better. Uh, but if it doesn't, if it only shows optic neuritis, it could still be the demyelinating form, as in the first presentation, like the clinically isolated syndrome, and then they have a lower risk of MS in the long term anyway because they don't have other lesions. Um, but it, it just makes me more likely to give steroids if it's only uh, the only changes of the optic neuritis and it's very severe. And in fact, if there was a delay in MRI, and if the severity is really bad, and of course, I checked about the whole infective risks and all that sort of, and I'm not worried about that, I would give steroids uh, sooner rather than later. It's oftentimes the balancing between risk and benefit of giving steroids, because those with the atypical form of, uh, on the non-MS type of optic neuritis, uh, delay in steroids could, uh, you know, uh, could lead to profound, profound visual loss. Uh, and the visual recovery could be very, very poor. Um, so then, do, you know, when do we worry or when should we be checking for aquaporin-4 or MOG antibodies or screen for sarcoid? Um, if, if it's really very severe, I would say, and if the demographics are such that it's just, you know, uh, more likely to be the non-MS group, um, I would certainly do that uh, for sure. Um, there are other patterns from the MRI that could guide. So classically, you know, certain things like certain patterns of how much perineural enhancement, how long is the lesion of enhancement, all that could guide with the, uh, the test for all these other conditions. I suppose, you know, beyond the eyes, you know, you've got your transverse myelitis and your long segment um, changes in the spine as opposed to lots of small patchy ones. Um, and bilateral in my, that bilateral optic neuritis that I said never happened in grand round. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bilateral, yeah, absolutely. You know, bilateral, certainly I'll be thinking of this is not MS. Um, and of course, as you are seeing about the longitudinal thing that, you know, from the history, uh, we, there is often a flavor of something, this is something else, you know, if this person has lupus and has other neurological manifestations or they had some cause, some transverse myelitis uh, that don't really know the cause of, you know, that their longitudinal form or really severe, there are oftentimes clues from these other things. Mm. And I suppose as well, it's, it's kind of uh, the, the presentation will drive because if it's generally a demyelinating form, it will tend to get better and folks will just go away. And if not, it will get worse and people will come back. So in a way, I guess that that's helpful in itself. Exactly, exactly. Um, beyond optic neuritis and sort of other causes of optic neuropathy, so um, registrars, are, there are a few sort of key ones that we always talk about. Um, but uh, I think that the anonymous honesty was, was quite nice. So I, I think the one I liked best was, I've never seen a labours. I'm really frightened of missing it. 
So I quite, I really like that one. So, I mean, is it, is it something that you see a lot or is it often mistaken for other presentations and mimics? Um, I see a lot, but that's because of my, excuse by my specialty. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, of course, not common. <laughs> it's rare. So, but uh, there are a few clues. So subacute onset, you know, um, of, uh, and also subacute onset of visual loss and the pattern of visual loss, uh, central, central sequel sort of visual loss. So like I talked about the, the value of uh, the bedside examination with, of visual fields with the red pin and such. Um, a few little tips uh, for labors. Um, so when you examine them, the nerves could look near normal. Uh, if with the expert eye, you may go, oh, okay, maybe it's something what we call peripapillary telangiectasia. So it's almost like there's some, it's a bit like some capillaries around the edges, that sort of thing. And oftentimes, the pupil reaction is normal. Okay. That's a nice little tip. And of course, um, the other thing, family history can be helpful. And as uh, you know, the maternal inheritance. Uh, but the key thing to say that it can happen also in female, female, because in the past, it's always oh, only male. But, and then the age range is increasing now. In the past, it says, oh, usually you see in boys uh, in their teens, it starts off. But there's enough reports of from really young babies to 90-year-olds, uh, you know, the whole spectrum. So I would say kind of subacute onset. Um, so that would be the classic uh, pattern. And oftentimes, if it's happened in one eye, be expected to happen in the other eye some months later. So if it was a second presentation, then there could have been clues from the previous history. Um, what other things? I, I, I think those are the key things. I yeah. think there's something else I want to say, but I've forgotten now. <laughs> I think my, my first labours was a, was a woman. Yeah. Um, and her optic discs were quite abnormal. And I think the worry, the worry was that she had um, sort of NMO spectrum disorder. So, you know, it, it was very sort of intense workup for that. And she was having plasma exchange. And then throughout all of this, and then she continued to get worse. So the Pabronex started because they're thinking about toxic forms. And then right in the middle of all of this, suddenly the labours test that one of the very senior registrars had requested quietly without really mentioning it came back. And I, I remember that and I just remember thinking, wow, because she was, you know, you know, theoretically that the stereotype isn't always where you find it, but it was just really interesting yeah. that a sort of woman in her thirties where you'd expect an inflammatory cause yeah. of bilateral. Yeah. Yes, and the other thing is also sometimes there is a double hit phenomenon um, so there are cases of patients with MS, uh, for example, or other reasons why they have their optic nerves affected, but it's just much more severe than the typical cause. And that's when oftentimes you also see labors, uh, mutation, labors hereditary optic neuropathy mutations being positive. And I would say that would be like a double hit phenomenon. Uh, they've got that, that risk and tendency. You've heard it here first. <laughs> Hiccup's dictum rather than Occam's razor. <laughs> um, so I think more common is the, the presentation of, of you know, toxic or, or, or metabolic forms of visual loss. Um, and I think when we've had older gentlemen come into the ward with sort of a subacute bilateral visual loss, um, toxic and, and metabolic causes are, are usually thought about and the, the, the man, no matter whether he's a Buddhist monk or, or, 
or a Catholic priest, the two, the two spectrums. Oh God, I might edit that out. Um, it's always assumed they're a big <laughs> drinker and a big smoker, whether they admit to it or not. Um, when you, when you manage people with, you know, middle-aged to older person with suspected toxic uh, or nutritional optic neuropathy, how do you go about working that up? Um, there could be clues already. So I saw a really, well, it was just fascinating, but very sad, of course. Uh, but it was just a full-blown, uh, just two days ago, of somebody with subacute combined degeneration of their, uh, and then peripheral neuropathy and bilateral optic neuropathy. And it was all messy. And it turns out that when, you know, this patient with the red pin showed a really nice illustration of central scotoma, really kind of in keeping with toxic nutritional uh, so pattern. They had a proprioceptive defect, etc. And um, and just with uh, asking the patient carefully, has been drinking for a while, nutrition, etc. So so often, oftentimes just the, the clinical suspicion and just asking the, the history in a way that helps. So for example, that that one, although nobody picked up about the alcohol, I kind of said, yeah, sorry to ask this, but you know it's important because it could be causing your symptoms, and we want to be able to treat this, etc. And that kind of lets them share more things if they understand why you're asking. Uh, uh, so yeah, so clues like that. Uh, sometimes, as you know from their blood, so it may not be a bandor B12 uh, rock bottom. It may just be like the nutritional profile is not that great. So because it could be a micronutrient sort of pattern. Um, if my if my suspicion is bad enough, I would give them IV intravenous Pabrinex or uh, intravenous vitamin uh, venous vitamin B. Uh, I say Pabrinex because that's uh, what I know it as, but maybe that's a non-brand name for it. But <laughs> but you know intravenous. Other brands are available. Exactly, <laughs> uh, and um, so that you know it definitely gets into the system uh, because sometimes it's a malabsorption problem malabsorption causing to a nutritional problem, which I think actually that men also have a double hit phenomenon mm. <laughs> because he was losing weight for a year and there was something with his bowel and he as well was drinking alcohol, so it's probably double hit. <laughs> yeah, so mm, yeah, just the, the, the suspicion in the first place. And wherever there's bilateral unusual visual loss, somebody will always say, is this paraneoplastic, Dr. Wong? <laughs> Oh, the classic. I don't know what else to say about paraneoplastic. <laughs> the thing is, it's really, really rare, paraneoplastic. Um, but, you know, it's good to know rare things. But if you want to make sure that we pick up all things, whether it's rare or common, again, I like to go back to, you know, first principles, if you like. You, know, you just think, okay, if it's paraneoplastic, oftentimes it's uh, bilateral, sometimes it's subacute. Of course, there's all these case reports when you read up, it could be unilateral, etc. But um, oftentimes, uh, you know, it starts off with uh, it starts off with actually assessing is this an optic neuropathy, optic neuritis, and oftentimes it starts with um, oh, is this like a inflammatory thing? Is there something else systemic going on? And I would say perineoplastic optic neuropathy itself is really really rare. If it does happen, it's usually said to be bilateral some optic disedema cells in the vitreous so when you look into with the ophthalmoscope it's all a bit hazy um, or their ophthalmology colleagues could pick that up but it's only you know about 0.01 percent of patients with perineoplastic syndromes 
Oh wow! And okay, it has has problems with the vision, and oftentimes it's a retina problem, like a cancer associated retinopathy, melanoma associated melanoma associated retinopathy. Um, you know, I have not seen myself a patient with perineoplastic optic neuropathy. Um, and that says a lot in terms yeah. of how rare this. It says a lot about how rare this. And I was just having a chat with another colleague. We were just chatting about perineal passing. He said, "Yeah, it's like one of those that people say, but actually, I've not seen either. You know, but of course, we're aware of the patterns. And um, and like any good neurological situation, there are clues out there. Um, there may be other neurological manifestations or other things, like the crib five stuff. You know, is there something else? You know, your movement disorder thing. Movement disorder folk and neuroophthalmologists are sisters because crib five is what connects us. Exactly. And PSP. Exactly. And more things, many more things actually. <laughs> Lots of collaboration possibilities. Um, but um, yeah, so it kind of starts from that really. And so, for example, if somebody's got a subacute visual loss, we'll be thinking, is this something uh, inflammatory? Is it something autoimmune? Um, and then it goes down the whole screen for all sorts of potential autoimmune things. And also that comes along with some perineoplastic situation and the treat and the management of it oftentimes guide the investigations too. You know, are they responding to steroids? Are they needing plasma exchange? Is it progressive? Is there something else neurologically? So I would say be guided by other things. I think probably perineoplastic can be on your list. And the investigations for an occult cancer causing this, yes. you know, will lead to looking for all these other problems that are more likely. But it is where it belongs, which is at the bottom of a quite a long list of differentials. Yes. yes, and if you're looking after the patient closely, you're not going to miss it because as you watch this patient closely and manage appropriately for systemic causes, for autoimmune causes, and it's not responding, that's when you know this is something like a bit more. So that's when you just go to your third, your fourth line investigations, go to your perineoplastic antibody screen, etc. So just being um, methodical like that means that one wouldn't miss a rare situation like a perineoplastic optic neuropathy when it's encountered. So I'm aware that I've kept you talking for a long time and you're probably very hot and very thirsty. Wow, it does, it really does. Um, so I think I'll be slightly unkind if you forgive me. And I might ask you for three things that are just really important things not to miss as a, at an SHO level. And maybe three things that the more advanced trainee, the neurology trainee or the medical reg should think about when the, the, when the, the well-informed SHO colleague has gone through their checklist. Mm -hmm. You mean like diseases? Yeah, yeah. Um, GCA always think about yeah. that, especially in the older patient, more than 60, always check the bloods and you can present in all sorts. It could be sometimes episodes of visual disturbance, you know, a transient monocular visual loss, kind of the things that you think of as, oh, this is the so-called embolic sort of TIA, but it's not because then it evolves and um, just being very careful with that. Um, so there is that form of presentation. There is the diplopia form of presentation as well. So certainly always screen for it. And also safety net of the patient. So some, I, 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 I oftentimes say, all right, okay, in some very rare situation, there could be this rare form of 
very probable condition, you start to get, and I just described the red flag symptoms, and I say, if this ever develops over time, you know, after I've seen you, please seek medical attention. So there is that safety net. I don't want to terrify you, but... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that's that. Um, So that's the GCA one. Um, I would say... I, I always tell SHO trainees, beware the third nerve palsy. Don't let the sun set on the third nerve palsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. That one really important. Um, and yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the third nerve palsy, I would also say the, uh, the optic neuritis. Um, don't just write it off as an MS type of optic neuritis because sometimes it worsens and the patient doesn't come back in time. Hmm. So I would offer an appointment to review like you know two three weeks after uh when you have seen and think okay i'm not going to treat you know just just keep close enough uh, appointment or maybe even sooner or depending on the patient and depends on you know it could be a telephone call it could be actually an examination or in this covid environment there are other ways you know there's some <laughs> ways there's optometrists etc to help i would say just be aware of you know i just um, of course, I'm also influenced by the London. Um, uh, London. <laughs> exactly. Because my patient cohort, I pick a lot of uh, sad cases where patients were sent away thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, it's optic neuritis, we get better, you don't need steroids. And then they have, like, they never recover their vision. That's, that sounds like a very northeastern, North Yorkshire kind of mentality as well. People just get on with it. Yes, yes. Don't they? Yeah. yeah. They don't come back when they, it doesn't get better. So, safety netting from that. Um, and I think that is fantastic for, yeah. for our SHOs <coughs> and everybody else. So yeah, it's for everyone, including me. Yeah. Reminding these things, you know, like I never forget, all- never forget the ESR in episodes of visual loss. Yeah. Don't let the sunset on a third nerve palsy, get an angiogram mm-hmm. and safety net the patient for optic neuritis. Make sure they know they can come back. I think that's, yeah. that is. Oh yes. Yeah. I think another good one is papidema. Um, yes, don't assume everything's IIH. Uh, don't assume everything's IIH, meaning don't assume everything's obesity. Mm. You look for the venous sinus thrombosis, look for the anemia, look for the sleep apnea. Roaccutane. I once came across Roaccutane, a poor, a poor girl who'd had terrible acne, and she'd taken Roaccutane to get rid of her acne, very thin. Yes, yes. And uh, she'd ended up with IIH from, from the Roaccutane. It's a, a sort of retinoid, isn't it? um yeah and and sometimes they, they can uh, get very severely affected you know um i am just i was just putting together a presentation for another meeting um and a really nice illustration of um the importance of just dealing with anemia very quickly you know patient actually lost a visual field uh sorry lost lost uh, parts of the vision because her severe anemia wasn't treated and she wow. was just away with acetazolamide oh wow okay and for your registrars, your med regs, once mm-hmm. once the ESR has been done and there's been an angiogram, are there, are there key things that you think a, a registrar level and junior consultant level should should be aware of for neuroophthalmology pearls? Neuroophthalmology pearls. Oh. I would say it'd be really nice to continue to work up, uh, trying to uh, keep trying to figure out which muscle is affected. <laughs> Which muscles limited, and that's a that's an ongoing skill, even for me, and that is what I do day to day, because it's nice to like really upskill and kind of know. And of course, um, 
because that is about localization, right? Is it a fourth nerve? Is it a just a inferior, uh, you know, deep, uh, the, uh, the, the, the looking down the limitation because of something else in the orbit? Um, is it really a third? Is it just a third? Is it actually at a superior orbital fissure? Are there other cranial nerves involved? Keep in that? questioning. So, yeah, so, so examine, uh, kind of just do enough with examination, you know, um, uh, get confident enough, like trying to differentiate uh, fourth, uh, is there fourth and third or, you know, something like that. Hmm. What, and what about finally, just for the, for the registrars in Grand Round, what, what, is, there, is there any sort of really pragmatic pearl that you can give when, when, they've, when they've run out of perineoplastics, mitochondrials, or, um, or it could be NMO spectrum as, as, as the, the phenotype is widening? <laughs> <laughs> I use that one quite a lot. Yes, yes. Um, pearls for, for um, I would say... You mean like for the management? I would say, you know, for example, if you if you're treating an optic neuritis, and you're certain it's an optic neuritis, such as you do your you have evidence from your examination and your you have enhancement of the optic nerve because sometimes the the worrying thing is uh, bilateral papilloma could be confused for uh, bilateral optic neuritis and vice versa. So I would say, you know. Uh, if it is definitely bilateral optic neuritis, sometimes if they're if they're not improving enough with steroids, keep working at it. Get your plasma exchange, you know, and, and such things, and it, that really makes a big difference. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I mean, this has been fantastic, and I warn you, there will be a sequel because I need <laughs> you to come back because this was so good. Um, I forget everybody else in the chat. I found it great. Um, we always end on the same question, which is if you were able to give one piece of advice to yourself as a junior trainee, could be neurological, neuroophthalmological, could be just life wisdom. What would you tell, what would you tell her? Oh, um, Somebody told me, uh, somebody told me uh, once um, they, about, you know, the difference between a doctor who's good and a doctor who's great is in the soft skills. And I think that is so true, as in it's in the interaction with the patient. So if it's how we are with the patient, with the communication, with with just the way that the doctor-patient, really, the, the rapport could lead to diagnosis, closer diagnosis, compliance, treatment, and better outcome. So with, uh, so with that, I would say, you know, just remember the value of kindness, patience, openness, and listening to patients with just genuine curiosity and interest. And call patients for a reason. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And being of service. So in order to be able to do all that, um, you know, to be like bring out the best versions of ourselves, um, it's really important to um, take time for self-care. So that's what I would say. <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Um, I hope everybody in the chat found this as helpful as I did. Um, 
I was being absolutely truthful when I was saying that you will be coming back because I think there's so much more that you could teach us. Oh, fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed it so much. And have a lovely evening, everybody. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste. Bye. Take care. Yes, thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. It's such a privilege. Bye. Thank you for joining us at Tease Neuro today. Why not check out our other episodes on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts? We're on Twitter on at Tease Neuro. In our next episode, Neil Archibald talks to Dr. Ross Dunn, the Clinical Director of Greater Manchester Dementia Research Centre on Psychosis.